Hello, I'm Tony. And I'm Patrick. And we'd like to welcome you to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. And uh, today we're starting off our new book, as you saw in, probably in our commercial, How to Be an Atheist, Why Many Skeptics Aren't Skeptical Enough. Very provocative title yeah. by Mitch Stokes, yeah. uh, forwarded by our good friend, J.P. Moreland. That's I right. I say good friend because I think that was the first book that you gave to me way back in the day when I first met you. Yeah. I'm into apologetics. <laughs> like, here, read uh, Secular City. or Yeah, that was yeah. J.P. Moreland's yeah. book. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good. So he does the foreword here to um, to um, uh, Mitch Stokes' book on um, uh, how to be an atheist, uh, and and so we'd like to at least walk through that a, a bit here, just so that you can get a feel for uh, what J.P. Moreland thinks with regard to uh, Stokes' uh, book. Yeah. He makes the point that. Uh, um, um, that he's a skeptic. He says that, uh, he says that, uh, yeah, well, he says, um, so first of all, what he does is he gives us some credentials on, on Stokes. His right? pedigree, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he says, first I was and am impressed with, the, with and encouraged by Professor Stokes' academic pedigree. He has a BS and MS in mechanical engineering with five patents. How about that, yeah. right? So he understands science well. Uh, then, too, he received an M.A. in religion at Yale under uh, Nicholas Vorsestorff and uh, an M.A. and Ph.D. in philosophy from Notre Dame with Peter Van Inwagen and uh, Alvin Plantica as his dissertation survivors, or supervisors. So, rather, so. Yeah, yeah, survivors, they, too, yeah, but yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah, but he's probably more of a survivor with Plantica. <laughs> so, yeah, Plantica is definitely a big name, especially in the Reformed epistemology uh, camp. Um, we we He's probably... The preeminent philosopher yeah. of, of our well, day. Yeah, 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 especially with regard to reforming epistemology. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, J.P. Moreland tells us that when I read this, this my head exploded. <laughs> How about that, right? Yeah. Having been in ministry for 45 years, I am thrilled to see a moment, uh, a whole movement arise typified by Stokes of well-educated Jesus lovers who uh, can competently address the important issues of the day. So he was excited about this book, right? And we should say, too, that Stokes seems to come, at least in this book, from, again, the Reformed Epistemology, which uh, has uh, kind of a focus on what we focus on, which is, uh, you know, a a look at uh, presuppositionalism. Uh, But J.P. Moreland is kind of on the other side of the issue yeah, he's, he's I, I mean uh, other side of the issue in the sense that he's more of an evidentialist uh, he's using uh, kind of a, a shotgun approach to say uh, here are scientific data to, to prove uh, God exists or the possibility that God exists so it's it's an interesting person to have be the forward to yeah yeah he's, he says when I got this manuscript I literally could not put it down I spent the day reading the entire <laughs> work he says wow so that's you yeah. know exciting stuff right this, this is the second time we've read it and the first time we read it, it Stokes is a funny guy for a philosopher yeah yeah he, yeah in fact yeah he is he's he makes kind of all kinds of little quips and jokes yeah and, yeah, yeah so this is and this isn't yeah. a dry book so yeah. this, this is one that's uh it's 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 definitely thought provoking. It's it's not your typical, uh, you know. If they still had family Christian bookstores, this isn't something that you find <laughs> on the front shelf. Uh, but this is definitely um, a, a book that's uh, has a lot of uh, good value to it. Yeah, good. Yeah, he he says uh, he says uh, this book gives the reader an education in a number of important areas, and it teaches us how to think. 
So that's a that's an interesting uh, endorsement there with regard to a, yeah. to a book, right? Time and time again, Stokes takes angles on an issue that is different, insightful, refreshing, and his research is exemplary. So, uh, so Moreland uh, likes his book. He thanks him at the end here for doing the hard work that made it possible to write this book, and he's happy to to see it published. So he tells everybody to read it, study it, right, and ponder what he says. Yeah, uh, you'll be the better for it. So it'll be interesting to see where the the two camps go from from here. Uh, I, I think uh, we see with like Frank Turek, we we see his uh, utilization of practically presuppositionalism uh, in his public debates, or, or not so much his debates, but his his. Uh, well, I, I guess he's done that one, the Unbelievable mm-hmm. Podcast. Yeah. Uh, but when he's talking with students, yeah. he tends to take a presuppositional viewpoint, but then turns it and has an evidentialist. Yeah. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see if the two camps diverge at right. points or come together at points. And of course, Frank would clearly say he's not a presuppositionist, right? right. Yeah, yeah. But we've seen, like, John Frame <coughs> clearly is a presuppositionalist, but at the same time, um, he is very... He's not adverse to doing evidentialist yes, arguments. Yes, yeah. he's not yeah. a one or the other camp. He is yeah. a presuppositional, uh, and then then comes part two, which is the evidential. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good. All right. Well, let's look at the uh, let's look at the preface to the book here. And uh, this is actually I started reading the preface before I did the uh, before I jumped into the introduction here because this is where uh, Stokes tells us that I'm a skeptic by training and temperament. Right. So he he starts off with the thing that he wants to say. And the point that he makes here, and he makes several points with regard to this uh, preface, and we just want to bring out a couple of these Mm -hmm. so that folks get a feel for where he's going here. He says, when atheists make uh, grand claims like this, for instance, uh, he says, it's one thing to believe that there's no God, but it's quite another thing to say things like, there exists not a shred of respectable evidence for God's existence, or... Quote, science shows that God does not exist, yeah. right? So you take your Petri dish, you, yeah. you, you <laughs> titrate the, the thing, and it comes out, no God No God, here. that's yeah. right. Yeah, Or it's written all over the sky, right? <laughs> when atheists make, he says, such grand claims, they're either frightfully ignorant of the relevant complexities, or, uh, he says, they're, they're bluffing, right? In either case, they should stop, uh, <laughs> if not for no other reason than that they're damaging their own credibility. Right. about that. So he's concerned about the credibility right. of atheists. It's, it seems what, what th- they're doing is they're, they're utilizing <laughs> kind of our, our, our big thing, especially in the Western world, of science. Mm. You know, if science says it, that's the big stamp of approval. Oh, yeah. Gravity yeah. pulls things towards the earth. Uh, you know, uh, science says it, I believe it. Water freezes so. at zero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, th- there's the science stamp of approval. And so by by making these claims that we can scientifically prove that God doesn't exist. They're overreaching with what science is doing, and therefore hurts uh, what what true science does. Yeah, good. Yeah, and he says they should exercise some intellectual restraint. Right, <laughs> yeah, is what yeah. he's suggesting. He says part of the solution is to realize and admit that belief and unbelief are each far more than a matter of reason. Reason alone won't settle the issue. No one is neutral. Ooh. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, right? Romans 1. <laughs> yeah, right? So the no neutrality thing here. Right? Yeah. We all kind of see through our own glasses. Reason doesn't convince necessarily. I mean, it does, right? He doesn't throw out reason, right? right. right. But uh, he says alone, he says, won't settle the issue. 
So this is why debates over God, he says, ex um, God's existence can sometimes seem like making a legal case for your devotion to your spouse. <laughs> right? No matter how reasonable you are, you better get flowers. Which, which the I think John <laughs> Lennox has actually done to, to Dawkins before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, is your wife faithful? Can you prove it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what he wants to do here is uh, he wants to try to, to work through these particular issues with regard to um, uh, skepticism. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, he says, the lesson I claim is that uber-optimism about science leads to moral skepticism along a path uh, through atheism. Uh, and then he uh, parenthetically says, or what I will sometimes call naturalism, the view that the world, the natural world is all there is. He says, uh, the problem in the garden was, at least to his light, that uh, uh, that the folks there, Adam and Eve, weren't <laughs> skeptical enough. So never, you know, never, he says, never get into a stranger's car, no matter what kind of fruit he offers you. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's three claims here that are at least three main sections of this book that he wants us to be aware of that he's going to work through. Right. Three main sections. The first section, he says, is by far the shortest. He says, I lay some epistemological groundwork. So, you know, epistemology is a study of kind of the nature of knowledge. And yeah. how, that how do we works. know things? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So in particular, I look at the limits of what we can know in general, considering our epistemic abilities with respect to, to sense perception and reason, our two main cognitive faculties. So touch, sight, yeah. taste, smell, those right. are the sense perceptions. Right. Uh, if you're looking to a microscope, that's that's you using your senses to exactly. identify something. Telescope, yeah. uh, a stone is rough. You're you're feeling it. Yeah, you know, th those types of things. Yeah. Reason is the two plus two equals four. Right. Uh, if I do this, then this happens. Right. So is the this the cause? Yeah. Causality. Yep. Causality. Yeah. He says, then, once we've gotten our epistemological bearings, I turn to science, and in particular, how we should think about its methods and claims. He says, uh, my goal is by no means to denigrate science or to deny that it tells us important and surprising things about the world, but there are also good reasons to remain agnostic, he says, uh, even, with, um, even uh, doubtful about things we cannot directly observe, and we uh, directly observe far less than many people imagine. So it's interesting that he's saying that science is almost a step two. Yeah. You, you have to have your senses, you have to have reason, uh, and that gets you the ability to do science. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I don't know if people would really uh, purse that out as as particularly as... Yeah, so, so most people would think that science is its own foundation, mm -hmm. and what he's implying here is, no, no, there is a further foundational we might even call you know philosophical uh, pre, uh, uh, foundation here with regard to our our uh, epistemic abilities you know we have to hold that they are you know at least to a certain extent lead us to 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 a, a proper take on the way the world is right and our cognitive abilities okay. so we have to have some assumptions about those before we even get off the ground with regard to science do our right? senses tell us the truth yeah are they are they accurate how accurate are they yeah. um are we able to use them 
uh, in time and place, or are they universal? Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's a lot there, and then we have the ability to do science utilizing right. those right. tools. So, so so science, given that particular uh, you know take on it, isn't really the foundation. It stands on the foundation of these other two types of things that we have to almost make some assumptions about before we even get science off the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, so yeah, so we so you know sometimes this is called a criticism of scientism. You know, scientism is the idea that science is the only discipline that gets us to the truth, right? Well, clearly, if it has a foundation that are these are more philosophical, the, this foundation than science, then it can't be, you know, the only discipline that get us to the truth because the foundation of science aren't scientific claims. They're right. more philosophical claims, right? You, you couldn't do science on science to, to get it. Yeah. So yeah, you, you have like to that. appeal to a, uh, a, a more foundational, a, a more basic um, set of ideas, yeah. like senses or uh, reason logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of interesting. He doesn't want to, so, so, so his first claim is with regard to uh, this issue here. Uh, he looks at the limits of what we can know, and then he wants to kind of turn to science and consider uh, some issues with regard to science. He says, in these first two sections, much of what I have to say applies to everybody, believers and unbelievers, uh, so that, uh, you know, he says we can all agree uh, on much of what I say about epistemological limitations, including limitations of science, although the limitations are significantly worse if humans aren't the product of design, <laughs> yeah. right? So he throws that in there, mm-hmm. right? But he says, suppose that naturalism were true, um, uh, further suppose that science largely uh, supports naturalism. What implications does this have, and here's his uh, third issue here, for our standard view that there are objective moral standards, right? So he's going to do some epistemology, and then he's going to apply that to thinking about science, and then he wants to move to morality with regard to what he wants to discuss mm-hmm. here, right? So he says in the third section, I'll argue that uh, if naturalism is true, then there are no such um, standards, that is, objective moral standards. So we, we saw this in uh, one of our previous episodes, and we'll put a link uh, here to uh, refer to that. But this is the don't answer answer type deal. Not, he's not saying that, uh, that he accepts the, the viewpoint of the unbeliever by saying, um, here's the, the, the be-all, end-all. But if naturalism were true, what are the implications of that? And then showing skeptics that here's, here's the, the conclusion that you would reach. If, if this were the case. Yeah, especially with regard to uh, to morality, right? Objective morality, right? right. right? Yeah. How, how does that... You seem to lose it. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's really what he's going to argue here, mm-hmm. right? That, that somehow uh, we, we get... He says, most atheists, however, um, would loathe to agree with his position with regard to objective morality, right? Their reluctance, he says, is understandable, but if they're serious about their skepticism... You know, about following reason wherever it leads, he says, <laughs> they'll, he believes they will reluctantly agree. Or at least um, he would if he were an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so he's he's calling atheists to be, or skeptics at least, to be better skeptics. Yeah, to be consistent skeptics, <laughs> yeah. right? To, to, to follow your skepticism out on every issue, not just the things that you want to be skeptical about, but mm-hmm. let's apply it consistently across the board, even with regard to your atheism, even with regard to science or anything else, right? right. Let's be skeptical about yeah. all of it if we're going to be yeah. skeptical. Why stop at point you know, B 
why not continue to point A or down to point Z? Yeah, yeah. And and we'll see here that he does, he he admits to being a skeptic, so he doesn't think it's anything wrong with it. But he's going to argue that you need to have the kind the right yeah. kind of skepticism. Well, right? and 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 we would we would <coughs> take this with with any truth claim, uh, especially uh, large truth claims. Uh, Joseph Smith comes to, to us and says, "I found the lost gospel on golden plates." Should you automatically believe, or should you apply skepticism? Yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like skepticism would. Um, cause you to uh, to be held back from believing absolutely anything and buying any type of snake oil or, or whatever might <laughs> yeah, might happen. Golden plate books. Yeah. Or but however, if someone says I don't know what they were worth, how much <laughs> well, they they were taken back up to heaven. Oh, so, oh, so, so yeah, man, yeah. So you didn't get yeah. get a chance to keep them. Uh, but if we had extreme skepticism on things like um, you know the uh, polio vaccine, well then. We'd all still be dying from. Oh yeah, polio. I'm not taking that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. How do I know that? You know, it's a, you know how I know that. You're gonna yeah. give me polio in order to cure polio? <laughs> what is up with that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Good. So then, uh, so that's kind of his uh, kind of his uh, preface. So we've so we've gone over here the. Uh, yeah, the forward, the preface to the book, mm-hmm. and so we have a little idea of where he's headed here. So we can kind of jump in now to his introduction, and again, he's going to pursue uh, kind of the, the take of where he's headed with this book in, in this introduction. Right? Yeah, yep. And it is called... Skepticism and Contemporary Atheism. Yeah. So, so um, Science and Morality, the Engines of Atheism, is, is kind of his focus uh, for... Uh, the first, uh, I'm sorry, the second and third parts of the book. Um, uh, he says that per, perhaps the most uh, conspicuous uh, tra- trait of contemporary atheists, besides atheism, of course, is that they're especially fervent about two things, science and morality. Yeah. Because, of course, what else would you fall back on? Yeah, now, now it's interesting here, you, you know, uh, traditional atheism back in the day, you know, you didn't necessarily, although maybe you could make a case that they were really concerned about morality. But what he suggests here is what really tipped the scales with regard to the new atheist yeah. is the 9-11 event. Yeah. Right? So yeah. people like uh, Dawkins, Sam Harris, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens, right, uh, right. people along those lines um, uh, that uh, kind of rose out of, you're right, uh, 9-11 allowed us to question a lot of things. But uh, well, it allowed them a, 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 to question religion with regard to morality, right? right? And yeah. and we we do remember. I mean, it, it was it was great for for us in the two thousands. Everyone was talking about uh, Christianity versus atheism, and it sparked a whole new set of books for us to go over, and it opened up conversation. And sadly, now in twenty nineteen, it seems like we're going the other way, where everything's being put under. You know, under the rug, or or uh, you know, you can't uh, offend anybody uh, again. So, right, right. Um, yeah, uh, yeah ho- hopefully, um, we 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 get that type of conversation back because I think it allowed us all to clarify and codify um, where we stood, and um, I, I think uh, we were all the better for it. We saw the uh, intelligent design movement come out of it uh, d- during that time too, um, and really. Um, there were court cases for it. Whether those yeah, were, so, so they were bad, a little there earlier. were conversations yeah, that yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, the real um, take on intelligent design was probably late eighties, nineties, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, but uh, yeah. So his his issue, he says, "Well, I think that science and God are incompatible, right?" And so he says that um, 
Uh, he wants to look closely at this line of thinking later, but for now, suffice it to say, he says that most, most atheists see science as underwriting their unbelief, right? And of course, it's he says here on the next page, here on page 21, it's only natural. Science and morality, then, are the drivers of contemporary atheism, uh, and, and thus this sweet spot, he says, in the debate between believers and unbelievers, right? Yeah. So this issue of science and morality. So the question, the issue here, what is the issue with regard to science and morality? Well, what he does is he takes us back to an, uh, you know, an age-old debate with regard to fact and value, the is-ought type of fallacy, that kind of stuff, right? He says, notice that science and morality fall along an all-important fact-value divide. Science tells us what is the case. Morality tells us what we ought to do, although some atheists believe that science also tells us what we ought to do, as we'll see. Humans, he says, seem to be hardwired, and so this is kind of an interesting point here <laughs> that he's going to make here, and of course we agree with it, he's going to appeal to Romans <laughs> 1 here, right? Yes. Humans seem to be hardwired to contemplate both conscience, conscience and cosmos, mm -hmm. right? Even the Bible suggests this in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, right, which says... Um, you know, what he says here, that we are, uh, he says, uh, that something in us is triggered by the created order causing us to see that God exists, Romans 1, 19 and 20. Yeah, right. yeah, so that's the, uh, the understanding that, uh, from a biblical standpoint, everybody knows that God is real, but they suppress the truth yeah. in, uh, in their unrighteousness, and it causes certain actions from that suppression. Right. Because you're you're actively rebelling. It's not a, a passive thing. Um, it's it's something that um, uh, is 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 done by the very nature of of who we are. Right. Yeah. Right. And and that's the point he makes here. There seems to be something like a built-in, according to Romans chapter one, mm -hmm. a built-in uh, faculty that causes immediate belief in God. Or would cause it if it weren't, you know, if it weren't for sin. Right. And so yep. and then in the next chapter he says, so Paul moves from this belief in God, this issue of whether or not God believes, and, and the fact that uh, we kind of see it in the creation. Um, in the next chapter, chapter 2 of Romans, Paul suggests that humans come equipped with a built-in moral faculty, or as he puts it, a moral law written on their hearts, mm -hmm. right? So we have these two issues here with regard to belief in God yeah. and morality. Right? Big, 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 because uh, his, his uh, charge against uh, the, the Jews in chapter 2 was, yes, you have the law and you follow it, um, uh, um, not, not uh, complete all the time, so you're hypocrites in that way. However, uh, those without the law, the, unbe the unbelieving Gentiles, they codify morality within their law or mm -hmm. within their consciousness. Yeah, and they yet, have the law written, he argues, right. in their heart. Right. Right. So, yeah. so things like <coughs> justice and um, fairness seems to be innate in man. And so our laws like uh, don't murder people, um, uh, d don't deprive people of their property through trickery, uh, having equal scales, uh, that seems to be a universal human concept, but still within that world of uh, this conscious-based application, um, they still fall short. They're still uh, acting contradictory to what even their their own mind tells them what they should be doing. So, so uh, you know, where does that all come from? That all stems from God writing the law on man's heart, uh, being made in the image of God, and so both Jew and Gentile 
can be held uh, to uh, God's standard of perfection and the need right. for a savior. Yeah. Right. So there, so so there's one standard, and both fall. Yeah. Both yep. fall short yep. of that standard. Yep. He says, in any case, we seem uh, uh, especially attuned to the wiles of nature and the commands of morality. And then what he does is he talks about, um, he says, and these propensities were not lost on the great Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant, who famously said, you know, and then we get this quote from this Kant, mm -hmm. quote, which is famous, by the way. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The more often and enduring reflection is occupied with them. Uh, he, Kant goes on to say, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Right? So those, that's, you know. Well, that doesn't sound like naturalism. <laughs> yeah, though. yeah, I know. Kant has inspired more than a sheer skepticism about God's existence, whether he intended to or not, <laughs> um, Stokes tells us. So he says that Kant's overall philosophical project was a, uh, you know, a momental, uh, monumental, rather, attempt mm -hmm. to reconcile the new scientific picture with the traditional one that we're morally responsible beings, that is to reconcile the laws of nature with the laws of morality. So he suggests that part of the Enlightenment uh, project that Kant was working on with this reconciliation project with regard to the laws of nature and the laws of morality. Yeah, because during the Enlightenment you did see both a, a, a rise in, uh, in, in Christian education as far as uh, pe people wanting to uh, go back to the sources and fontes and uh, uh, and and um, find uh, better translations of, of the Greek Bible, uh, but you also had an increase in atheism, which is almost unheard of throughout the world at that right, time. Right. Somebody, uh, it seemed, believed in a god or gods or uh, capital G God at some point in time. The Enlightenment allowed people to kind of check that and say. Do, do we need that? Yeah. So, so, and he makes this point here. He says folks uh, felt it, it, it. They they called it. It was a sense of freedom, is what he called it, yeah. right? Which was at a premium during the Enlightenment. He says we might even summarize the Enlightenment the way a philosopher called Popper, so he's a famous philosopher of science, uh, did as liberation that is self emancipation through knowledge. But what exactly were the shackles? How were we? <laughs> you know, what were we liberated from? Well, in a word, religion, mm -hmm. right? Not that all Enlightenment thinkers were atheists. Many were deists. Of course, many were still Christians. But a sizable portion of them saw organized religion as oppressive and overbearing and intellectual dictatorship. And so they sought the freedom to think for themselves. They were called free thinkers, uh, among other things. And so that was part of what was going on in Enlightenment. Yeah. Throw off the shackles of religion, we can use for Kant, anyway, reason and others free thinking in order to come up with you mm -hmm. know ideas uh, to be liberated, to be um, emancipated from, yeah. from the religious old religious thinking, right? The it, yeah. Outdated, you know, um, uh, you know, medieval, yeah. you know, oh, dark ages. God of, subscribes yeah. to morality yeah. Yeah. And, give, and tells you the the oughts, what you ought to do. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's why you see uh, a, a big push, uh, especially in. Uh, kind of the hard sciences for kind of the social Darwinism to come about. Uh, wh why, wh why should um, wh why should you and I not kill each other right now? Well, if we look at the Darwinian aspect well, because of survival, you're bigger than I am, and I don't want. Well, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
that that we should that we shouldn't engage in 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 warfare because it mutually benefits us to uh, you know come together and pool our resources together yeah, or yeah. at least not kill each other for resources. Yeah. So so the idea of reciprocation. Is yeah, the and so idea, that's supposed yeah. to be. And and I, I I don't I've I've never heard anyone articulate this and it's probably my fault more than anything I I don't see where that's ingrained what 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 gene or what what DNA strand can I can I point to and say yes that's the no killing my neighbor mm-hmm. oh but except when I do kill my neighbor what, what is that a different gene yeah and so yeah. social Darwinism uh, <coughs> it seems to be this, this this big push and 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 a lot of people are saying like you know. Um, why are we afraid of of snakes? Because it it, it helps us to, to survive. And so yeah. when we when we um, uh, are afraid of the dark and and we like horror movies, it's because we we hearken back to those days when that was beneficial yeah. to get us to survive. Well, where's where is that? Yeah, I don't know yeah, where that's yeah. at. So and 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 actually, the new, the new name of the social Darwinism is social biology, or it's relatively new. It's it's starting to be passe. Yeah, social biology was kind of replaced the. You know, the idea of survival of the fittest for uh, reciprocal relationships that, that allow for survival. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's kind of the new thinking with regard to social biology. But, you know, in either way, it, it the, that type of thinking gets got out of the picture and attempts to at least explain morality, right. yep. if not, you know, if not giving us a basis for mm-hmm. it, at least explain it with regard yeah. to the It might not give you process. a full ought, why, why should we do this or why right. ought we do this, right. but at least it seems to try and trap it within a physical, uh, naturalistic viewpoint so right. that you can say scientifically... And, and you know, there's your there's your buzzword where we can say, well, in Romans it says, and yeah, that, that yeah. to us is a is a, a, a meme signal, uh, to use a, a Dawkins <laughs> yeah, phrase, yeah. to 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 say this is this is where we draw our source of truth from. Uh, they say scientifically we know this, and right. so they can kind of punch that up. Good. So we have this issue of of liberation, freedom, and like, and so he says these enlightened groups. He says uh, con- uh, emphasis. These these groups, rather, he says, continue the Enlightenment emphasis. These groups, he means folks like uh, Richard Wartree and uh, Krauss, Lawrence Krauss and hmm. Hawkins and Dennett and folks. On reason and freedom, he says it's no coincidence then that uh, the late Christopher Hitchens and his uh, searing attack on religion, God is not great with the chapter in conclusion, the need for a new enlightenment, mm-hmm. right? He says the idea seems to be that we should be weary of others, of what others tell us, particularly the, those others who are religious, Ooh, right? Yeah. Got to watch out be for them. be skeptical of authority yeah. and think for ourselves. Which, I mean, Dawkins says that, uh, you know, it's worse than child abuse and that uh, you should yeah. look at people with disgust who tell you that they right. believe in God because they are backwards people. Yeah. So, How, so, however, within even his own book, he he makes the point that re- religion is there for survival purposes. So it seems like wouldn't you? You, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. I think, right? it's, it's almost yeah. like he's acting contradictory yeah, to yeah, what yeah, his, yeah. his truth claims are. So this idea of them being skeptic, he wants he wants to pursue this. Obviously, this is the main thrust of his book here. Yeah. So he gives us three different takes on skepticism mm-hmm. right so he says uh, he says if knowledge unlocks freedom then whether the notions of doubt and skepticism that hitch that Hitchens so highly valued he says knowledge and skepticism seems to be polar opposites of one another so he gives us the first kind of skepticism mm-hmm. he calls it a full-blown skeptic is someone who doubts 
that we can have knowledge about anything whatsoever, yeah. right? So that's full-blown skepticism, that we can't know anything, right? Of course, now he doesn't want to pursue that because then that kind of almost defeats itself. Right. right? You know? and, well, and, and you can kind of say, yes, that, that is the extreme side, but at the same time, no one honestly believes that because by making a claim that we can never know, yeah. you make a claim that you You're can know. You're making a knowledge claim. Right. right. Yeah. We can never know anything is a knowledge claim yeah. that you can know something because that's at least one thing <laughs> which then know, defeats yeah. we your can never know argument. anything except the thing that we that the, the fact that we can never know <laughs> right something like that although yeah, which is, you know, I, I would like yeah. to see uh, uh michael Shermer, who's the <laughs> the big skeptic magazine guy i would like to see skeptic magazine be actually skeptic and uh, you know bigfoot is doesn't exist but then i want to see skepticism for you know the, the opposite end of, yeah. of of that and I think that would make for a true skeptic magazine. Yeah. So, and that's kind of the kind of issues here that he gets at in mm-hmm. this book, right? He wants skeptics to be really skeptics. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't want full blown skepticism, though. And then he's, he says there are, of course, kinder, gentler versions of skepticism, right? <laughs> and said, according to these, he says, we do not or cannot have knowledge merely about specific topics. So we can call this specific topic skepticism, mm-hmm. right? What does he mean here? Well, for example, that we can be skeptics about God's existence, right? Yeah. And so that's a specific topic skepticism. So but a, he, but, a true agnostic would yeah, be someone that's like Something this. like that, right? But he doesn't want to limit it to just God. He says we might be skeptics about the physical world outside our minds, hmm. about unobservable scientific entities like electrons, quarks, or gravitons, or about objective moral laws. People can also be skeptical about events like a worldwide flood or evolution or the Big Bang or the moon landing, right? And so, you know, so... This is, he calls it a kinder, gentle notion, a gentler notion of skepticism. So we have full-blown skepticism. We have this uh, specific topic skepticism. And so he's going to use this specific topic skepticism. But what he wants to move to is what he calls sober skepticism. Mm-hmm. This is his third kind. He says, but skepticism can also refer to something much less controversial. Something more mundane and practical. This kind of skepticism is an overall, an overall, he says, epistemological st- uh, stance, mm-hmm. a kind of safety-first attitude toward what one believes. He calls this an intellectual caution, right? And he says this even kinder, even gentler skepticism merely says that we shouldn't be, you know, unduly credulous. Uh, credulous, rather, that we should uh, filter our beliefs using a sufficiently fine dosatic sleeve, right? Doxa is the Greek for belief, so a belief mechanism. Here. He says, and he wants to call this sober skepticism. Sober, sober skepticism can obviously be embraced by the believer and the unbeliever alike. At least it's obvious to me. He says. Right. <laughs> yeah, so this would be something like... Uh, I come up to you and I say, a UFO has landed in my backyard. Yeah. And you say, that seems a little outlandish, but I'm willing to go with you on yeah. this journey yeah. to, to see it. And yeah. once yeah. I see it, then, okay. Then, then I can reevaluate yeah. what I think. So yeah. this is, yeah, this is kind of sober skepticism. It's an intellectual caution, right? And so these are the three then, right? He, this full-blown skepticism, which he's not going to talk about at all. This um, 
specific topic skepticism, which he is going to talk about because the specific topic skepticism. You want to focus on yes, skepticism about God. Mm -hmm. So he wants to talk about that, and so he's going to spend some time on that. But the one that he likes is what he calls a sober skepticism. This is this general intellectual caution, the safety first attitude that he wants us. You know, it's kind of a an overall epistemological uh, attitude with regard to. You know the things that we should believe. Yeah. He calls it epistemologically savvy <coughs> and streetwise. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> he says, unfortunately, the two main kinds of skepticism we'll consider in this book: sober skepticism and uh, the skeptic, skeptical, topical skepticism about God are often conflated. Yeah. That is, in other words, you know, you have um, sober skepticism and skepticism about God somehow interlinked as if they're basically the same thing. Yeah. And he wants to kind of deconflate these types sure. of things. Sure, because right? we, we have uh, people within our own camp who would claim, uh, God, God told me this, or God visited me here, or uh, I have the ability to do this because of God. And it seems like if you were to take just a full belief approach, then you, you're all over the map on uh, the, uh, theologically where you're at or just uh, could be taken advantage of or, or you're unable to uh, parse if, if someone is telling the truth or not or if someone's mentally ill or just mistaken. Yeah. And so uh, to, to conflate the two uh, means that we would be joining unbelievers of God uh, in, in that same camp. But right. we, we uh, should also kind of have this... Uh, healthy sober skepticism right so the question is the sober skepticism is it part and partial with skepticism about god or are they two distinct type Mm -hmm. of things which he's going to argue that they are in fact what he says is my goal here isn't to show that there are good reasons for a sober skeptic to believe in god though i hardly believe that there are instead i will try to make a decent case that that there is a conflict between sober skepticism and science-induced atheism, that is, skepticism with regard to, um, uh, that leads to atheism with regard to God, right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's what he wants to kind of decouple these things and say, hey, there are two different things, and one is a good thing, and we have to really work through the other one, right? right? So if you're only skeptical, he says, then, uh, then obviously no new ideas would come about, and he wants to, you know, he wants to avoid <laughs> yeah. that, that type of thing. Yeah. Which he's a scientist. He's got patents, so yeah, he knows yeah. <laughs> he knows the the working science, not just the theory science. And so I, it's probably uh, you know we're probably getting late in the day here, but uh, we should just. So what he's trying to accomplish here, and he says it on page twenty nine here mm-hmm. at the top there, at the very last, he says the pressing question then is this: What does a good skeptic look like, particularly when it comes to science and morality? Mm-hmm. Right. I'm afraid there's no simple answer beyond learning. Uh, some philosophy and carefully studying the issues. And so let's do that. He wants us to work through that. So what does a good skeptic look like with regard to science and morality? Which is a really provocative question because what do you mean skeptic about science, right? And what do you mean skeptic about morality? Mm -hmm. These things we take for granted. We take science for granted. And we take morality for granted. Mm -hmm. We know that there are certain things that are just wrong and others that are just right. So what does a good skeptic looks like with regard to skepticism, I'm sorry, with regard to science and with regard to morality? And he wants to pursue what that is in this book. And uh, learning some philosophy and uh, carefully studying the issues and uh, 
luckily enough, you've got us yeah. for going through this book to explain <laughs> yeah. the philosophy, yeah. uh, having Tony explain the philosophy, really, <laughs> and then uh, looking carefully at the issues and um, uh, kind of building upon what uh, what uh, Stokes has um, has written in his How to Be an Atheist. Yeah, so we're excited about this one. This yeah. one is, uh, this is a really neat we book. We really like this one yeah, when we went through it the first time. Yeah, and Stokes has done a good job, and he's. I think he's going to try to keep, he's going to keep our interest with regard to these various ideas. Yeah. And so uh, we look forward to, to working through these. Yeah, so for this book, uh, pretty much, uh, un- unless if uh, a chapter gets split into two, uh, one chapter a week until we're all done, uh, there's about uh, 18, 19 chapters here. And then um, if, if we do have to split it up into two, you'll get uh, uh, an episode back-to-back within uh, a day or two. So uh, that's how we're going to go through this book. So if you want to read ahead and uh, or, or read along with us, uh, feel free to take it at whatever pace you'd like. And uh, if you want to just sit back and let us do the heavy lifting, we're, we're here for that too. So thanks for joining us on the Cave of the Cross Apologetics, where we don't just apologize for our faith, we do apologetics. <laughs>